Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I, I found something out that's sort of irritating me. I play words with friends. Me and Joanne play all the time. And she beats me. I beat her. It goes back and forth. And I play friends. And then I play some other friends who I see they, they always get these amazing scores. Now, I understand that occasionally someone will get a 60. I actually got a 120 one time. I couldn't believe it. Points on a word. Then I found out that there's a function on your words with friends called word strength, where you can see it's like a little graph pops up or a little meter, and it says if it's the strongest word or not. And to me, that's cheating. And now I'm at the point where if someone, and it's maybe it's just bad, maybe I'm just wrong, but if someone scores like 50 points like five times in a row, and there are words that I've never heard of, I'm not by any means a genius, but I have a pretty good vocabulary. And when you see like three words in a row that you don't even know that they could be spelled that way, I think you're cheating. Anyway, enough about that. I just, it irked me, people. I'm sorry. Uh, we have a great show. You know, I don't know. It's so funny how I got her, my guest, my guest, Michelle Green. How you doing, Michelle? Hi, fine. How are you? Good. Um, it's. I was thinking, I, I hit you up on Twitter. I don't know if I, I had followed you or you followed me. I think you liked one of my tweets somehow. And then whenever someone likes my tweet, I go, Probably. I go, hey, I can get him on my show. <laughs> so that's how it happened. So now, now you, 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 you've been acting for a long time. You're in music. Yes. You're, you're real. You're like a Renaissance woman. You direct. I know well, you're directing some plays. And uh, how did it get started? I know was it because you were very shy when you were younger. Is that how this whole career got started? I came from a, you know, my mother had been a singer and a performer um, for many, many years. I mean, many years. Not, I guess not many. In those days, you got married and stopped doing it. So, um, But she had. She'd been working professionally as a dancer and as a singer and in, with a trio with her two sisters. They did all sorts of live gigs and performances. They were on the early days of live television on a show that was done by, um, that was produced by Klaus Landsberg, who was this, you know, unbelievably innovative, you know, brilliant guy who sort of saw the power of television. Um, and they, when KTLA in Los Angeles was like the only live station. So they were very involved in a lot of that sort of stuff. And so my mother was, was a performer, and that's what, what she did. She got married. She had kids. She stopped. Um, but we grew up in a house where people were really aware of that. You know, we're, we'd always hear these stories of you know, just my mother's life in the arts and whatnot. And and so my brother and I were both, you know, that was a world we were very much aware of. And um, it wasn't really foreign to us, you know. And my mother was also is also a great reader and a great lover of, you know, books and literature. So we knew about great writers when we were young. We would talk about, you know, the Brontes or we would talk about Colette or, you know, when you're in middle school and whatnot. So we had an awareness of that whole world of, of language arts. And then I was extremely shy. And uh, my mom, my brother had been in, in drama as kind of an extracurricular activity for him. Um, that wasn't what his sort of thing was. He went on to become a very world-famous academic at Stanford. But um, I would go and see him in plays, and I thought that looked fun. And I was extremely shy, so my mom said, why don't you take this drama class? Or No, she actually got me to go audition for a community theater production of Alice in Wonderland in this local park that was near our house and I went and I was scared to death I was so scared I couldn't even go in and then she told me well if you don't go in and do this audition you're probably never going to do a play ever and that was was too extreme so I went and auditioned and I got some role and I thought it was fun and and then I started doing it and then I was sort of good at it and I thought oh wait this can be my thing so that became my thing what was it like I mean I think you went to Fairfax High I sure did. So what was it like, you know, because so many people, we gravitate out here. But when you grow up in this in this city, and Fairfax, you know, is, you know, different famous people, a lot of famous people will come out of there. When you grow up in this city, when the industry is right next to you, it must be somewhat easier because it's like me growing up near Philadelphia to go into Philly to do comedy. It was right there. I mean, right. what, did, was it something that it made it easier because you were around it? I mean, there's probably a lot of... I don't know. That, I don't know that it made it easier. It was just, it was so prevalent. I mean, it was like everywhere. And so I, I think when you grow up in Los Angeles, you have a very different relationship to the city and to the mythology of the city. You know, 
than than you do if you come from somewhere else. People come from other places to LA, and it's sort of like they're reinventing themselves. But if you grow up there, you know, even though it's quite a big city, you run into people all the time that you went to school with. And I don't know, I always feel like it's sort of ludicrous. How am I going to reinvent myself when I go to the market and I see people I went to kindergarten with, you know? Um, so you just have a very different relationship to the city. And I guess the industry as well, because it is so common. It's not like, like you're going to some special place and there's this portal into this world. You know, it's just sort of there. Things are constantly shooting in your neighborhood. There's, you know, you see all kinds of stuff. You're driving past studios all the time. Um, so I think that the sort of mythology of Los Angeles is, is really watered down for people who grew up there. I it's just your town. It's your town, you know. It's yeah. like my town. Yeah. It's, it's like in Texas, they love high school football. Yeah, it's the same yeah. thing. It's like that. So, right now. Yeah. so now you're in high school. And right. do you decide in high school that you're going to pursue this as your lifelong dream? Or were you on the fence? Because I know you went to USC, I believe. Well, I went to high, in high school. I really enjoyed being in theater productions. And, I, and as I said, it was like, you know, I was not athletic. I was a good student, but I wasn't like one of those brainiac students. You know, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I like, did fine. But I really enjoyed theater, and but I knew that I didn't know anything. I, I mean, you know, when you're in high school theater, it's like, what you know, what do you know? You know nothing. You're doing like bad, bad acting that you think makes sense to you as a 16 year old, you know. Um, so I knew I wanted to be an actress by the time I was probably a junior in in high school. But I also knew, um, you know, I have to go learn how to do this for real, and I have to get some proper training. And I also really wanted to go to college. You know, I in our family, education is a big deal. So, so the notion of not going to college and just becoming, you know, a TV actress was never an option. <laughs> so I auditioned for this program at SC, which was their conservatory Bachelor of Fine Arts program. It was a great program. Um, and I got in and I went on scholarship because I certainly didn't have the money to go to SC. Right. And, and, um, and it was a really good program. I mean, you learned, you know, you learned all the real basic stuff and, and how to be a real actor, which was great. And I really enjoyed it. And I did a lot of theater when I was in school, but I was also working in TV. So I would sort of, um, I wouldn't take any job that would have pulled me out of school full time, much to the chagrin of my agent at the time, because, you know, I was like, I will not go in for a TV series because I didn't, I, I was, I guess, smart enough as a kid to know that if I got out of college and started working on some TV show and making a lot of money, what are the chances I would go back, you know? Right. And at a certain point, you're past the time. You know what I mean? You're not going to go back to college at 27 or 28. Especially for what, so, you're, especially what you're going back. You're not going to go back for acting when you're already yeah, exactly, acting, exactly. you know? Yeah. So I, uh, so I did. I finished this program, which I loved, and I had a great time, and I made a lot of great friends and met a lot of really talented people. And um, then I, and I started working more aggressively, of course, when I got out of school. Um, and then that, and then I just, you know, I started working all the time, and it was great, um, a lot of fun, really interesting, a lot of nice people, a lot of interesting shows and projects. Um, but I was always interested in writing, and I was always interested in music as well. So I was always kind of juggling all of that and trying to find the way to do all of it. Right. Well, I, I like the fact that you were on Eight Is Enough. I. <laughs> I just, you know, I mean, that's to me because I remember watching that show and I saw that on your IMDb. I went, holy crap, she was on Eight is Enough, a, a bunch was. of episodes. That was an episode. That was, I had just turned 18 because I didn't need a guardian. That was, a, I did the first couple of jobs I did, I had to have a guardian because I was 17. But when I did that show, I remember I was already 18 and I remember driving to the lot. It was shot, it was shot in what used to be, um, MGM at Sony. Now it's like Sony slash MGM, I guess, but I call it MGM still. And it was the Lorimar lot where they did all those Lorimar shows. And I remember driving there and, and yeah, and I remember I drove, my, I drove myself and I didn't have anybody with me to watch me. And it was, I was Willie Ames's girlfriend. <laughs> That's classic. That's awesome. It's pretty funny. So, so you're you're getting roles, and then you get out of college, and it seems like you you landed on a on a series very quick. I did, like two weeks out of college, I landed on a series. Now, how hated were you by other actors? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. My I'm friends joking. were all fine with it, but it was just I just sort of got this. It was a great show. I loved that show, Bay City Blues. I loved that show. It was a wonderful show, and I loved the role. And um, I, I remember going to the audition, and I was really upset because my dog had gotten lost. 
like two days before that. I found the dog a few days later, but the dog was lost, and it was like two days into the dog being lost, and I really couldn't even concentrate on the audition at all. Um, and I think I was, I think it was some scene where I had to cry or something, and I was really upset about the dog, so it was kind of easier. And then I just, I don't know, I just kept going back for callbacks and going back, and next thing I knew, I got the job, and I was like, oh, okay. And we all had great hopes that it was going to become a really cool series, but it, it died a miserable death. <laughs> and, and it was over really fast. Um, but I made a lot of the contacts I made there are people I then, who then went on to do L.A. Law a few years later. And that was sort of how I ended up on L.A. Law. Yeah, when I, now with L.A. Law, I mean, as you said, you got in that show. And, of course, it's so exciting because you just got out of college. And I'm sure it's also devastating because when we're, I mean, anytime anything gets canceled or anything we get it's sad but when you're probably young it must be harder because it's like wait a second this became so easy i just got out of college so it did it was it was it was interesting i mean i when bay city blues was canceled oh i was heartbroken i was so upset but you know i was also young and i was like okay you move on um and then right around the time that i went that la law was getting ready to happen i had also gone in and read for the girl role on matlock right and I was like, I loved Andy Griffith. Who didn't love Andy Griffith, right? We grew up watching Andy Griffith. Um, and then I sort of was in this position where I had to sort of choose between those two projects. And I chose L.A. Law because I just thought it was, you know, hip and interesting and all sorts of things. Um, in retrospect, now I sort of wish I'd chosen Matlock so I could have worked with Andy Griffith. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. I love him in that movie, The Face of the Crowd. Oh, is he great? It's so... Right? He's so powerful and scary. Oh my God, I, I watched that. And you know, because in the same way, you grow up watching him as Andy Griffith. And I never yeah. saw that movie when I was younger. And I got, I saw it like. Oh, well, I saw it when I was older too. And he yeah. scares the heebie jeebies out of you. Oh, he's so he, scary. And he's such a jerk. I mean, and you sit there and go, what a prick. I mean, it's like you sit, you know, you're watching him and going, he's, yeah, it's just amazing. And then you sit there and you put on Andy Griffith and you go, yeah, oh my. God. Powerful, he's a really powerful actor. And once you've seen him in that show, and then you watch him on the Andy Griffith show, you can see all these like little things that are layered in there, you know. <laughs> and and in his performance, I think he's terrific. I mean, I really do. I'm sort of until I saw a face in the crowd, I thought of him like you know, yeah, do 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 do. But he's he's so wonderful in that movie. He just knocks your socks off. Now, when you read for LA Law and you went in for it, did you think it would have such an impact? Because that was one of the shows everybody watched. And, and the funny thing is, people who didn't even care about lawyers watched that. People who didn't care about LA watched it. I mean, and honestly, yeah. when you sit there and you go, LA Law, yeah, and then you watch it, it was very, I mean, did you know when you read that first, like the first um, No, I didn't, honestly. After the, after the Bay City Blues thing, I was really, really cautious. I felt like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did feel that it was the kind of show that would take a while to find an audience for exactly the reasons that you just mentioned. So I was very surprised when, like, out of the gate, it was this huge hit. I mean, we were all kind of like, those first couple weeks after it aired, we were all kind of walking around the set going, wow, wow, we're getting really big numbers, wow. Um, and then it became this sort of monster show, you know, and and it was, at the time, for what it was, it was very groundbreaking, obviously. You know, they had started a lot of that, really interesting cinematic uh, camera work on Bay City Blues. And they carried some of that over to L.A. Law, of course. Uh, there's certain style that those shows had. And that it was about lawyers in which lawyers were people, and they had a lot of faults and a lot of failings. And um, they weren't, you know, so many shows with lawyers prior to that had had these lawyers, you know, they were these really idealistic characters that you, they were always right, they were always on the right side, everything always worked out and wrapped up nicely by the end of the episode. And in L.A. Law, it was, like, messy, and they were not very nice, and they did really unethical things. <laughs> and sometimes they, they did horrible things, and sometimes things worked out so badly, you know. And I, and I think that was part of what was interesting about it, that the, you saw lawyers, and it, 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 look at it now, and it seems so minor. But at the time, I think it was a big deal. And we loved it because I got out, I graduated college in '86 and I went into sales. We loved to watch how everybody dressed, the men dressed, like Corbin Burnson oh, and Harry Hamlin were like so so hip, like they had ties that back east you would never think of wearing. Oh, they a, had like, and it really had that LA feel to it. That that sort of anything goes in LA, you know. Um, and and as lawyers, you could be more flamboyant and you could be all these things that were very different than the East Coast at the time, and. Um, and I think it did capture a lot of the sort of flavor and character of L.A. Like L.A. was almost like a person in it. You know what I mean? 
there was a it was like another character. Now, uh, now what was it like for you as the show starts getting popular, very popular? You probably start getting recognized, and I think for, for anybody, it must be a weird like the first time. I mean, it may, some people may have recognized you from your other shows, but when the show is that big, and when you, we think about back then, the numbers of people that watch them, it's not like now where you get like... Oh, there's so many options now. You yeah. Know, people and, be watching a million different things. So, you know, big numbers now are not what big numbers were back then, you know. Um, no, I mean, it's interesting. In L.A., you never, no one ever recognizes you, or if they do, they don't say anything, because in L.A., everybody's very blasé. So, but I noticed it, like, the first, the first time after the show was doing, you know, like, maybe the first season, the show was a hit, and I went to New York, and in New York, people just come up to you and go, oh, I love your show, you know, and I was sort of surprised, because in L.A., nobody says anything to you, you know, they're, like, they're all sort of too cool to talk to you, which is fine, um, but it was a, it's a, you know, it was, it was interesting. I went to London after that first year, same thing. It was a huge hit in, in the UK. So there was a, you know, you get people, you know, coming up to you, talking to you. And it was, you know, it's very flattering. It's very nice. And then the reality is you owe your career to those people. So they're tuning in and watching you and supporting you. And you darn well better be nice to them, you know, and not act like you're being put upon. Now, did you, <laughs> did you, did you get some good free stuff? Oh, you always got some good free swag, you know. <laughs> you always get stuff, some stuff, but not from the network. In those days, you know, the days of the network giving you fabulous presents, that came later. The network didn't give us, you know, they, we didn't get anything from them. But later on, on shows like Friends and shows like that, oh, yeah, you got big gifts from the network, but not, no, L.A. Law came sort of before that, before that wave hit. So you're, you're on L.A. Law, and then you end up, you get nominated for an Emmy. I mean, what's that feeling yeah. like? I mean, First of all, when they do the Emmy Awards, they're so early. I don't know if they had televised them back then, but they, they're so early. And it's such an accomplishment, especially, I think, now. I think it's, it was bigger back then. I, I don't know. I just I, we, I, I always feel like the Hollywood levels have changed how actors are looked at. You know, then they were more legendary, I think. Just it was, you know, because... Well, I think part of it was in the world before the internet. Um, you know, there were a few outlets like, you know, tabloidy sort of outlets or whatnot, and, and, the, and the more legitimate tabloid things like People, which is basically a tabloid but sort of has a, a veneer of being something different than that. Um, but, you know, those were your outlets for getting a window into these, these sort of people that you saw on TV or in movies. And back then, there, was, there were not like 80 million websites that had every single picture of every person pumping gas or walking their kids into school the way there are now. So there were these days, you know, you'd see the Academy Awards or you'd see the Emmys or, and people would, and yeah, the Emmys were televised, I remember back then. And, and you know, you saw people, there weren't like a glut of red carpet events every week the way there are now. So you would see these people that you saw on television who were television, you know, performers or whatnot, and you'd see them all dressed up. And that was like your moment you were going to see them you know, in that environment. Now, every single week, there are like a million red carpet events for every charity, for every everything. And you click on any, any you know, online news source and you're going to find a whole bunch of pictures of celebrities dressed up, going out. So I just think that, um, I think things did seem bigger back then. You know, there was more of, a, of an element of mystery. And there wasn't 87 different award shows. I mean, right, exactly. now exactly. it's like, you're exactly. like, yeah. what? Every time you turn around, there's a new award. <laughs> but back then, it was, yeah, there were the key ones, and that was it. And that's when you saw your favorite stars dressed up, and they look, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's very different now. But what at was, the time, I think it carried a little more, you know, there was sort of more of a mystery, more of a kind of glamour sort of thing about it, you know. What was it like getting that call, though, that you got nominated for an Emmy? I mean, that must be for an actor. It was fun. I got a call really early in the morning. I, I wasn't even... I had forgotten it was Emmy Day. I, I mean, that they announced it. I didn't even remember. And I think Jill Eikenberry called me really early. And I was annoyed because I didn't like anybody to call me early when I didn't have to go to work. And then she was like, you got it! I didn't know what she was talking about. I was like, what? What are you saying? And, and then, you know, and of course I was thrilled. I was very excited, you know. I, um, it was great. It was a terrific... I felt, you know, a terrific honor. And I was very thrilled I was quite a young actress at the time and I just felt really thrilled to be um to be recognized and that somebody thought my work was good enough that they put me up and that they chose me as a nominee you know 
Now, what you also had, what was it, the first lesbian kiss on TV? Yes, I did. Yes, now, I did. now, like, it's so funny you think about it. That, that was so groundbreaking then, and now we don't even think about it. I mean, it is. I mean, it, I, I think about it. You know, I have friends on Facebook who I went to college with, who, and I graduated, started graduating in 86, and of course now they're they're married to their husband, you know, and he's, you know, yeah. you know he's gay, but back then people weren't out like they are now. And so when you look no. back, you go, oh, that makes sense now, you know, but I mean, what was it like? Because that was so, like, Taboo. I mean, almost taboo, even in '91, which is sad to say that. But what was what? that? What was that like when you had that scene, and what was the reaction to you? Well, what was interesting was that that whole storyline and that scene and whatnot had tremendous support in the gay community all over the world. I mean, I would I would get things messages from people in Israel and all kinds of places um, who had watched it, and and gay people who had watched it and were so thrilled. But you know, the reality was it was a pretty callous thing. They they never intended. To explore that as any sort of real storyline, um, they just were sort of, you know, wanted to do something sensational, and, and that's that's the reality. The producers were like, "What can we do that's going to, you know, shake everybody up?" And the network sent down, they sent down a directive that said, "You absolutely, this can be a one-time thing. You cannot have two regular characters on a series have a homosexual relationship. Absolutely not." Um, so there was never like it was going to go anywhere in terms of. In terms of a real exploration of, of what that was, because it came out of the blue, you know, Amanda's character was clearly supposed to be bisexual, and um, and Abby, they just didn't know what to do with Abby. They were like, oh, what can we do with Abby? Okay, let's just have her do this. <laughs> um, you know, but Abby had been married, and she'd had these boyfriends, and, and so I always thought, like, well, where did this come from? Is this a person who's... Is this a person who is really sort of experimenting with this? Is this character considering that maybe she does have some of these feelings and, you know, inclinations? Maybe she is interested or is she just angry and and bitter and this good-looking girl kissed her? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, so for me, I was sort of trying to figure out how to make it make sense in terms of who the character was. But the fact that they never really were going to explore it in any way you know, then you had to decide, well, what was it then? It was it was just a, a strange moment for this, you know, Abby was what, this like Midwestern, straight as narrow kind of girl. Um, so I think it was. It was a moment where she was sort of like caught off guard and went, oh, well, wait a minute, maybe, you know. But I wish they had been willing to explore it as a real thing because it's an, you know, it's an interesting story arc and character arc to go, hmm, you know. Especially in that time. Of, especially yeah, in especially that. at that time. You know, and now, of course, you know, the great thing is that that does seem so incredibly dated now. That's a wonderful thing because, you know, and I think, I think certainly as, as there became more and more legal challenges in terms of civil rights and whatnot, that people started to go, hey, hey, guess what? You really can't discriminate against this big segment of the population. You can't not allow them to get married. You can't do this and that and the other. And then it, you know, it becomes very... Um, it's a different world, you know. I mean, for me, since I always worked in the arts and I always worked in theater, I know so many people who are gay. I have so many friends, men and women, who are gay. Because, you know, especially when they're young, when people are young, especially like in high school, that's sort of a safe environment, you know what I mean? It's this kind of bohemian, artsy environment. And and for, for kids who were gay, it was a safer place, you know, to sort of be accepted. Um, and there were, you didn't have the same boundaries social boundaries that other social groups did at that time, at that age. But um, what's great now is that kids, you know, I have a nine-year-old son, and, and, you know, he's so cool with everything. You know, he'll. we were in the car one day with a friend of his, and his friend said something about someone being gay. He said, what is being gay? And, and my son gave him this very, you know, straightforward answer. <laughs> he said, well, oh, no, a little boy we were driving with said, two boys can't be married to each other. And my son said, yes, they can. <laughs> he said, I have, my mom and I have tons of friends who are two boys who are married to each other. And he was like, really? And we said, like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing how it's changed. I mean, I know guys I went to high school now who are getting married. And I'm thinking, God, how long did they have to wait? I mean, especially back East. I mean, it's like you sit there and go, man, uh, oh, well, that's just, anyway. So I got to ask you, as, as you were acting, now you've always had a love for music. Were you playing music as you were acting? Yeah, yeah, I was never, I'm not a really good musician in terms of playing, I play a couple instruments badly. Um, 
but I write a lot of music, and I write, you know, I write, I write like the melodies. I'll write them on the piano, or I write them on the guitar, usually on the piano. And I really like to sing, and I love being a lyricist, and I, and you know, I love all of that. And I was all, I was doing a lot of singing, and um, I'd always been singing. I'd, I'd done a lot of legit singing when I was younger. I did a lot of musical theater. Um, I'm not that wild about legit singing. I find it, you know, kind of stagey for me. I, I like sort of popular music better. Um, and in terms of writing music, you know, I like the kind of music I like to write. But I, um, it was hard. You know, back then it was very difficult. You, it was so impossible to be like, you know, you're like a person on TV every week and then you're, you know, going to go record a CD. I mean, it, it was like laughable. At that time, there was not the kind of crossover there is now. Um, now it's much more common and people, there's still some things that are difficult about being taken seriously. But there are a lot of, a lot of actors who are singers. There's a lot of, there are a lot of singers who are actors. Um, but back at that time, it was a little more difficult, and and a lot of the music I was writing was in Spanish because I'm bilingual, and I was writing a lot of this sort of um, almost like a Latin folk Americana kind of fusion, which was so not what anybody would have expected me to do. So and that was like another little alternate universe, you know, where I was doing that. But it was fun, and you know, and I still do it. Now, did you grow up listening to a lot of Spanish music? Yes, because my mother had been a, a singer in a Latin trio. Yeah. Now, we, okay. We, go ahead. No, I was going to say because you know I heard Juan Gabriel die the other night, and I, I saw a lot of people on my Facebook friends who were like how huge he was. And for me, as I said, you know, we didn't grow up with the Spanish culture, but I mean, that was that that was must have been really impactful, especially for someone who grew up listening to it. I, when I saw that Juan Gabriel died, I called my mother. I was like, "Mom, Juan Gabriel died," and we were like. You know, I mean, he was a great songwriter. He wrote these great, oh, that great song, Hasta Que Te Conocí. Oh, my God. It's like one of these beautiful, beautiful, you know, Moreno ballads. I mean, it's such a beautiful song. And he was a, he was a, he was an interesting, you know, sort of icon also because he was so clearly, um, he never came right out and talked about it, but he was so clearly gay and effeminate in a really macho culture. But um, I saw him live once. I got tickets for my mom and I to go see him live at Universal Amphitheater. God, what a great showman and, and a great songwriter, you know, and um, huge icon in, in Latin America and Mexico, you know. So, yes, I was, I was, I was very saddened to see the, the death of Juan Gabriel. It's been, it's been, it's been an awful year. I, that's what I'm going to say. It's I know. So many great people have died. It's oh, just like It's terrible. awful. Now, now, uh, why did you leave LA Law? Did you decide your time was up, or did the season end? Did the series end, or what? What made you move on? Because I always wonder when you you know what happens. What what do like I had someone who left ER and he said I should never have left ER, but I didn't like my role anymore and I should have stayed. But is there something that happens when someone leaves a show? Well, I mean, in my situation, I wasn't. I know I, I wasn't thrilled with Abby because they the last few years. I think in season four, maybe I had a few good storylines. But I had sort of nothing to do. They didn't know what to do with me. They just, I always thought she was an interesting character in that she was the only character on the show who was a young, single parent with a very demanding job. Um, and they never really dealt with that. You know, I always used to say, Abby must have the greatest, you know, childcare in the world because she never has an emergency or a problem. <laughs> and there never seems to be like a real, and a lot of working women who have very demanding jobs, like being an up-and-coming associate in a demanding law firm. You know, you're working ludicrous hours just to try and make partner, right? Um, so I always thought there were a lot of sort of legitimate stories there that were not explored. And I was a little bored with her, you know. But at the same time, at the end of the fifth season, they had made my character a partner, and I was kind of excited that maybe there would be some interesting storylines. And then they had a, and it wasn't really a shakeup because everybody knew it was coming. But there was a shifting of the guard in the in the producerial staff, and uh, David Kelly was stepping back, and Stephen Boschko had already sort of stepped back, and they promoted up some other people who had been producers, and one of them was a guy, <laughs> a guy named Rick Wallace who I had known since he was an AD. I'd, I'd known him in the Bay City Blues days. And at that time, Rick Wallace was a really unpleasant man, and he hated the entire cast of L.A. Law. So he would constantly, like, argue with everybody and pull everybody into his office. And we all would say, like, oh, have you gotten the call, Harry, to go up this week? Now you're going to be raked over the coals. And he, um, he just really, you know, developed a real thing where he was pissed off at me all the time and for no particular reason I hadn't done anything but he got very focused on me in that fifth season and um, you know he would call me up to his office and 
show me a reel that he had cut together of all my hairstyles over the five years and which ones he liked and which ones he didn't like. I mean, it was, it was so weird. Um, oh. It was really weird. It was just weird. He'd come Stalky. down in the it's middle okay. of shooting the scene. And so the long and short of it is that when he got promoted up, he just decided in this sort of vindictive way that we're just not going to bring Michelle back. And I was completely caught off guard, and the other writers were caught off guard because they had made the character a, a partner. Uh, the cast was caught off guard. We knew Harry was leaving. We knew Jimmy was leaving. But I wasn't planning to leave, but suddenly I got this call from my agent, and he was stunned. He said, they're not bringing your character back. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, they, they made me a partner at the end of the year. He's like, they're not bringing you back because, uh, you know, what's-his-name doesn't like you. <laughs> And he apologized years later. I ran into him somewhere, and you know, he corralled me and said, I'm really sorry I did that. It was a terrible time in my life. I was like, yeah, yeah, thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> um, but it was really a shock. I mean, I have to say, it was a shock, and you feel, um, you, you know, I, I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. And I was, you know, I've been made a partner in the law firm. I was planning to come back for the sixth season, and suddenly, boom. I was out, and um, I was really upset. I was like, really hurt. I was really hurt because I felt like I'd been working with all these people for years, and and I felt really betrayed, you know, and and really, really hurt, really hurt by it. It was it was a big a big shock to me. No, and at the time, I, yeah. So and then you know, and then I got over it, obviously. And but at the time, I was very stunned, you know. Yeah. How do you how do you mentally? I mean, if it's it's not like. You know, it's not like I talk to people who, who got a pilot and doesn't get picked up. You know, it's like, how do you mentally rebound in this business? I know, when, it was really and, hard. It was really hard. And, and, and I was, um, and then, you know, you have to put a spin on it. You know, you can't, right, I can say it now, but when it happened, you know, you can't say, oh, Michelle Green was let go from LA Law because then it's like, ooh, what did she do? You know, why? So you have to find some way to spin it and make it look like it was your choice. And you have to suddenly you have all these press outlets calling and wanting to know why you're leaving, and you've got to put this like sort of happy face on it that makes it seem like, um, oh no, it was just time, blah blah blah. But the reality was these were people I had worked with for years, and and you know the hard part of it also was like a guy like Steve Boschko, who I really considered to be a close friend of mine. I'd known him since I was like 20. You know, I'd, I'd known him 10 years, and um, and I really you know, thought that that he wouldn't let something like that happen, you know, for such a petty, personal sort of reason. But he did. You know, he did. And what can you say? You know, you have to sort of go, oh, ouch. Um, so, you know, and it was in the, at the time it happened, it took me, you know, I was sort of, I had to go into kind of like uh, publicity PR mode right away you know, and make it seem like it was, you know, fine and da-da-da, but it was quite difficult, and I was very, um, it wasn't so much that at that point it wasn't like I loved the job so much. I was kind of bored with the role and, you know, not thrilled with what they were doing with her, but it was a big shock, I have to say. And, it, and there's a part of it that even though you realize that it's a, you know, it was a personal vendetta sort of thing, you know, the guy years later said to me, it was nothing that you did. And I was like, I know damn well it was nothing I did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I never thought for one minute it was me. Thank you very much. But, uh, but no, and there, you know there's nothing you did, and there's just this person who's decided they don't like you and they want to hit you where it counts. And, um, and that can happen, you know. You don't have the same job protection that you do in different industries. You know, if some producer decides they just don't want to deal with you anymore, they can just write you out, boom, you know. And you don't have a lot of recourse, but it was yeah, it was very hard for me. It was it was very difficult. It took me a little while to get over that. You know, I kept working. I started doing you know TV movies and everything right away, so it wasn't that the it wasn't like the work part of it was that difficult. But it was hard for me personally because I and I and I really felt like I was part of this big show. You know. Yeah, I would think that just for also when you go. I mean, yeah, you're working. But as you know, as you said, you and you were on the show for a while, so you become like family, and not just with the other actors and the producers, but yeah, with the crew. And so that must have been, you know, at least you were working. Did you did you find it? I mean, each time was it different for you to go on a new set because you were so used to working on a set? Well, no. I mean, what was difficult was that 
Oh, I was a lot younger than most of the other people, except for Blair. Um, I was a lot younger than most of the other actors. I was, you know, minimum 10, some, in some cases 15 or more years younger. Um, and there was this weird perception that people within the industry had that I was a lot older than I was. So I was, you know, 29, I think, when, when I left L.A. Law. And, you know, in person, not in a business suit with big 80s hair and everything. You know, I looked younger than that even. Um, but it was very difficult. It was a lot of people in casting and a lot of other producers thought I was about 10 years older. So I would get these calls to go on these, for these roles that were way too old, you know. And I walked in the room and I didn't look that old. And then there'd be this sort of awkward moment of like, oh, oh, we, we thought you were older. Um, and then a lot of the roles that were my age, there were people who were like, oh, no, she's a lot older than that. So it was th that part of it was a battle. I was working, but I wasn't working on necessarily the stuff I wanted to be working on. And I wasn't getting in for the kinds of roles I wanted to do um, because I did have this whole weird thing. And so it's, very, it's hard enough to be an actress who is 40 and see the you know grad you know the yearly diminishment in the number of opportunities that exist for you, but it's really hard when you're 29, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, what the hell, you know? So yeah, that was hard. That was hard. Now I, I ask all my guests this when they've been on the show because I love Cold Case and it took place in Philadelphia. Oh yeah. What Cold Case was your episode, and and you played the 2007 version. Did they have someone as a younger you? And what's that like? Yes, they, some, did. they did. What's that they like to have someone younger? Oh, that's okay. You know that. You know, there. Look, when I started working, I was the youngest person on the set. I had a guardian. As I got older, I became sort of the same age as people. Then at a certain point, I was older than some of the people, and then at some point, I could have been the parent of some of the youngest people. So, you know, you just have to roll with that. Um, but no, no, when I did that one, I played, a, it was a fun episode. I remember I had just started the adoption of my son and I was so excited about it. That was all I could talk about with Danny Pino. And uh, what is the name of that actress? She's so nice. Uh, the one who's looking on Cold Case. Catherine Martin, I think. Or Catherine something. Martin, yeah. And they were so nice. And we had, I had a really fun time working on that episode with them. Um, but I remember I was just so thrilled about the adoption of my son. That's what I remember about that episode. That and we had a wonderful director who had done some really interesting films, this um, German woman. And, uh, but I got, an, I got an allergy <laughs> from a makeup brush on my eye. And one of my eyes in the middle of that episode swelled up. I looked like a turtle. And I remember we had to shoot around that. And it was, it was really difficult because... We had, I had all these big sort of breakdown scenes. I was supposed to have been like a rape victim years ago, and now I was grown up and didn't want to talk about it, but they had found the rapist and blah, blah, blah. And I had all these sort of big emotional scenes, but I had this eye that was completely swollen up, and I had to always have that eye away from the camera. <laughs> yeah. So, that was a nice show. Yeah, I always, I always, I love that show. I don't know why. It's, I guess cause they had one, they had one uh, episode that took place in my hometown of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I was oh, like, "Hey, I have a good friend who lives in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, Randy Alexander." Randy Alexander. Yes. Do you know Randy Alexander? Is it a guy or a girl? He's a guy, and his wife is named Randy too. Randy? No, because well, how old is he? He's, um, I don't know, probably my age, a little couple years older. Okay, because I'm, I'm class of 82, Cherry Hill East. We had two high schools, Cherry Hill East and Cherry Hill West. I'll have to look him up later just to see. Yeah, he's a PR guy. He lives in, he lives in, in uh, Cherry Hill. He works out of Philly a lot. He's a music PR guy. I did PR with him years ago, and I, and I just saw him actually in Philly last year. I went to Philly last October with my son for his first trip to the East Coast, and, and we saw Randy and his wife, Randy. But he's, I know, he's super cool, um, you know, PR, well, excellent, see, excellent PR guy. But yeah, he lives in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. See that? That's where I grew up. Uh, yeah. So I got to ask you, now, now, you've written some children books, too. Yeah, they're young adult, they're young adult now, novels. Now, so how, did you get, picture books. How, did you, how did you get into that? And I mean, was it something that, you know, when you're, I mean, how did you know the market? How did you find out? what you were writing, I mean, because it's, you know, you have to think of a different age line and be very imaginatory. How did that, how did that whole passion start going and how did you? Well, I just, you know, I'd, I've always, I'd always been writing. I've always loved writing. I've always loved books. I've always loved everything like that. And, you know, I've always been writing a lot of stuff, but I sort of had this idea for a book that, and I didn't really, I didn't really think too much about the voice or the audience. I just had this idea 
for a book with a protagonist who is a 15-year-old girl in Los Angeles. And, um, and I just sort of started writing it. I wrote, you know, like a, maybe three or four chapters. And um, I hooked up with a book agent in New York, and I sold it on proposal to HarperCollins. And it, um, and it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And I was very happy with the book when it came out. And, uh, and then I, you know, a couple years later, I wrote another book. I sold that book to Simon & Schuster. Um, and I liked, I liked writing, you know, I like writing any, I like writing all kinds of genres. I don't, I don't only like writing for young adults, but I, I had these, these ideas that fit that audience and, and had a protagonist with that voice. So I, I just sort of jumped in and tried it. You know, I, I didn't agonize too much about how it would be received. I just said, well, I'm just going to do it. And then it worked. <laughs> and now, now you've written two? I've written two. Yeah. And I have another book I'm going out with in about a week. I'm sending it off to my book agent to go out with that book. Um, I took a little bit of a break from sort of everything in the last few years because I became a parent. And then my son, um, when I adopted my son, he needed a number of surgeries. He had a, uh, uh, he had a cleft palate and a cleft lip and a cleft palate. And um, even though you see those things on like Smile Train and they're like a $250 surgery, we'll fix this. Um, if you're in the United States or you're in Europe, there, there are quite a number of surgeries that, that children end up going back for. So um, he had a, he had like six surgeries in seven years. So it put kind of a kibosh on a lot of stuff for me. I, I, I was so focused on, on him and on, you know, it seemed like we were always preparing for a surgery or recovering from a surgery. So now he's finally done. I don't think there are any more. Um, and so now I sort of feel like, oh, I can sort of kind of go back to my, my life. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's good that you, I mean, that's good that you did that because, you know, it's, it's important. Well, that's it. I mean, the reality is when you're a parent, you know, you, there's a lot of other things you do. Of course, you know, I'm not a housewife and, um, I'm not that being a housewife is easy. It's really hard. Believe me. I, I function as if I am. And I'm also a writer and I'm also an actress and I'm also, I've been the artistic director of a venue, but I'm leaving that in the next few weeks, which is wonderful. Um, but I, you know, I've always had this life in the arts, but when you become a parent, I mean, it's, you know, it's so not about you and, and you're, your life as an artist, especially in performing arts, has to be very focused on you. You're the product. You're the commodity. It's the marketing of you. You know, it's the reinvention of you. Um, how are people perceiving you? And that's a that's a reality. That's not just ego, and that's not just vanity. That's that's a reality of how you have to sell yourself and think of yourself that way. And if you don't, you know, you're not maximizing your, you know, potential professionally. But when you become a parent, I mean, that goes right out the window because you have this other person, you know, and that's a, a much bigger job to me and a much more important job than any other job I'm ever going to have. So, um, you know, needing to really focus on being present, you know, because my son was adopted, he came home at two. He had lived in five places by the time he was two years old. I couldn't, you know, I could have, I suppose, but I wasn't going to be the parent who had a nanny raise my son, you know, or have the nanny pick him up from school and take him in for his doctor's appointments. It was really important to me that I was the hands-on person for all of that. And I don't regret that. I don't regret scaling back work for a few years at all yeah. because, you know, you don't get those years back. You can't get those years back, you know. Exactly. So you said you're an artistic director at a, and I saw you posted some stuff on, um, yes. on Twitter. Yeah. What was was that a theater company you worked with, or and how yeah, did you? How right. did... It was a venue, performing arts venue. I moved up to Lake Arrowhead a few years ago um, when my son was four. I moved up, which is an hour and a half from LA, um, and an easy hour and a half. You go down this freeway that doesn't usually have a lot of traffic. It's a straight shot. It's a really pretty community. It's up in the mountains. Um, it was a big culture shock for me since I've always lived in the city. But I, I kind of wanted to spend more time writing. I I wanted. I knew I wasn't going to be able to go in for a lot of TV stuff, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of production that's shot out of state now. And I wasn't going to go in for the things that meant I had to be gone for six weeks or eight weeks or, um, and I sort of had to be local still because my son had a wonderful pediatrician and a wonderful craniofacial team at Children's Hospital. And um, when he was littler, he was in the regional center getting speech therapy. And there were a lot of services that he needed. So I had to kind of keep one foot in my life in LA, but I kind of wanted to get out of, of LA as well, just because of traffic and 
it's so congested where I used to live. It, it, it was so difficult to, to forever to get from point A to point B. So I moved up to the mountains, which is very nice. It's a very small town. Um, and then this performance venue kind of opened, and I met with the owner a couple times, and one of the owners, and they asked me to come in and, and sort of help shape the identity of the venue and help turn it into like a a well-respected performing arts venue that had a wide range of theater and music and a lot of other things. And it was very fun. You know, I did it for a year and a half, but, um, you know, sort of it's developed, it's become more of like a hard rock venue. So I, I kind of was like, no, their focus is more on like local hard rock bands. And that's not my thing. You don't need me to do that, you know. Um, so I've done a few shows there, which was a lot of fun. I have one show left to do that opens in October and then I'm finished which is fine, you know, because it's, it's a nice little gig, but it's, it's not the right fit for what I really want to do. And we're not sort of on the same page. And that's okay. Now, now, when you say when you have one more show, are you just in the, how are you involved in that show? It's an original show. It's a show I wrote for this venue. It's a silly, silly, musical, campy sort of romp. Um, it's a show that's based on sort of the history, some of the history of this venue. This venue had been... Uh, like sort of a hangout for gangsters during Prohibition and these sort of glamorous L.A. gangsters and the Jewish mob and whatnot with Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky and all those guys. And that's sort of the, that's sort of in the marketing of the venue that people know that, that it had that aspect to its history. So it's a show that is, uh, it's like a cabaret-style musical review and it has all these crazy characters who are, it's during Prohibition, and people are supposedly coming up there to get away from police and get away from, you know, anybody who's paying attention to what you're doing. And there's a brothel. There used to be actually a real brothel across the street that was part of this, this complex of, of buildings. So it's sort of set back in the late 20s, and it has this kind of crazy group of gangsters and hoodlums and murderers and murderesses and a lot of songs and a lot of dancing and it's very vaudevillian you know it's like got these sort of really campy characters but it's fun you know it's a fun little show and it's just with the sort of local theater group up here and the people in it are having a very good time which is kind of why I was sort of ready to go and then I thought well we have this one show left to do and it's fun so let's just go ahead and do it what is it like seeing your work be put up like that I mean because you know you've you've acted and you've had other people's scripts but when you it must be a cool feeling because you, yeah. you're musical and all that what is that like it's fun I mean it's a fun show and it's it's really it's, it's a funny show so I like seeing I like that people enjoy it and they, they sort of get the jokes and um, everybody's having a good time so you know that part of it is fun to me and uh, so yeah it'll be a nice little you know it'll be a nice little project to be my going away project you know from this venue now, with your TV appearances, I know you you know you were in Brothers and Sisters, and Recurring, yeah. and, and Big Love. It must be great to work with great productions like that. I mean, what what, oh, yeah. what experiences did you have on those shows? I've all, you know everybody on those shows are great. The writing is wonderful. Ken Olin, you know, was one of the you know main producers of Brothers and Sisters, and I worked with him on Bay City Blues, and I've known him for years. So when I got that gig, it was really fun because you know Kenny and I got to like just hang out on the set and talk about oh whatever happened to so and so oh did you see so and so and you know blah, 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 um, but nice people, and, you know, when you're on a show like that, any one of those shows where the writing is good, the production values are good, the the people care about the quality of the show, and that's a wonderful thing, because there are some shows that they really don't care that much about, you know, that are really these formulaic sort of shows that, you know, everybody's goofing off, and nobody cares whether the storyline really makes sense, you know, um, so the kind of shows like Brothers and Sisters, or Six Feet Under, or anything like that, or Big Love, those are a pleasure to work on. You know, the, the casts are so professional, and they're talented, and the writers are good. and It's great to work on a show like that. It's not so fun when you work on a show where everybody's, like, phoning it in. What's, what do you do when you're an actor and you're on the show like that? I mean, that is people are phoning it in. I mean, how do you sit there and keep the... Uh keep your spark of energy because you know you seem it's very hard. energetic you and you you it's really hard i did i did a show once that had these two leads who were on their phones texting the whole time and they were texting during scenes if the camera wasn't on them See, that was and it's horrible it's horrible because 
And obviously, you can see by the way of the show, you know, there's producers on the set. Nobody stopped. I mean, if you tried to do something like that on L.A. Law, oh, my God, you would have been called on the carpet so fast. You would have been hauled into the executive producer's office and read the riot act for doing something like that, even though smartphones didn't exist then. But if you had done the equivalent, um, oh, you would have been in so much trouble. And you, so you're on a set and you're in the scene and here's this guy. The camera's on my close up, not on him. But it's like a big scene in which I'm talking about how my husband was killed or something like that. And the guy's texting on his phone during my dialogue. So you're talking to him and he's texting? He's looking down at his phone and he's texting. Oh, shit. And, you know, you're like, and you look around and you see these producers sitting there. No one's stopping and saying, hey, knock that off. So you realize, oh, okay, I'm on a show that has these, like, shitty production values. So, you know, you just do your best. You have to sort of pretend he's doing what he's supposed to do. Because um, it's not going to get you anywhere to say, stop, hey, you know, because obviously nobody on that show cares. Right. So you just do the best you can do. But you do have to say, you know, um, is it going to affect the quality of my performance? Sure it is. You know, of course it is. Because I'm working with a person who doesn't really take what they're doing very seriously. And I want to show that nobody cares really how good it is or not. So that's hard. You know, that's a hard one. Now that your son's um, operations are done, are you going to start trying to get back into the acting? Well, or are you going to play more music? Or what are you going to do? I want, what I want to do is I have books I want to do. I'm, I have several books I'm in the process of working on. And I'm thrilled. I want to finish all of them. I have this one I'm going out with. I already have a lot of interest in it as a possible movie development. Um, so that might be great. I would love to do that. You know, I have several projects that would be great to sort of cross-pollinate with the other world of my career. And of course, you know, I want to go back to start working and, and doing all the stuff I was doing before. And now my son's older and, you know, he's more independent and all of those, you know, surgeries are behind him. So it's kind of like I can kind of step back in and say, hey, you know, hooray. And I'm thrilled, you know. And, and music, I love to do music, but, you know, I'm not, I'm probably, my perfect thing for music, I would love to, like, have some gig you know, once a month in some cool club in L.A. and not even do, like, original music. I'd love to just do standards and stuff. You know what I mean? I love that. I love that. You knew who so. did that. You knew who did that. It was because uh, she was on the show. Remember Tiffany? Yes. Well, she yeah. she does a tour now where it's stripped down acoustic, and she goes in and she plays old covers and some of her original stuff and people love that kind of stuff now the whole yeah, acoustic thing is cool such a great feeling to just get up and sing oh god i love this song or i love this lyric and i just want to get up and sing it and that's just part of the love of being a singer and it's not really about you know oh, i want a record deal i mean i don't want a record deal i mean my god at my age i don't want a record deal um you know it's ludicrous um but it's not about that. It's about just getting up and singing and the joy of singing. And so for me, I would that would be the perfect thing for me. I'd love to, you know, oh, there's many things I'd love. I'd love to get some great gig on a series that doesn't shoot in L.A. and shoots in, like, I don't know, some other city and some other place and, you know, then do have my little acoustic music gig now and then and write my books. Oh, God, I'd be as happy as could be with that. You should do your acoustic gig at the place that brings in rock bands once a month. I should. I should. I should. Book, book yourself. <laughs> book yourself before you go. Book like myself once before I go. Oh, you know, this is a town that's, you know, what do you do? It's a small town. It's, oh, what can I say? It's a little rednecky, you know. It's, uh, they, want, they want to hear, a lot of people up here, they want to hear, like, someone pretending to be Led Zeppelin. You know what okay. I mean? <laughs> And that I, I just don't get that. That to me is like I I don't get that. <laughs> now, what is this book that you're pitching about? Can you talk, say what it's about? Uh, yeah, it's about it's a book about uh, stolen identity and wish fulfillment about a young person. It's a sort of hard hitting book. It's a book about a young woman who um, assumes the identity of a friend of hers who dies, and um, it's it's a story that, that that sounds bizarre. Like how could somebody do that? But the story is set up in a way it has you know various plot points that make that feasible, um, and it's about wanting. It's something that I think a lot of teenagers feel wanting to be somebody else, wanting to have somebody else's life, somebody who you perceive as having a better life than yours, um, and she thinks that she's going to be able to do that, and then that pulls her into a. It's not just the stress of trying to keep up that ruse, but it's. It pulls her into a whole other sort of suspense storyline that she doesn't expect. Um, but it's, an, it's a nice book. I really like it. It's, it's, um, I'm quite happy with it. 
It's called My Name is Emily Ray. Okay, now, now if that was to be developed into a movie, would you ever want to tackle the, the job of doing the screenplay for it? Oh, God, I would love to do that. But, you know, the reality in the industry is always, you know, you they, they so rarely want to let an author actually write a screenplay. But um, actually, my other book, Keep Sweet, um, which is about Mormon fundamentalists, uh, was uh, was actually optioned for several years by ABC Family, um, and they wanted to turn it into a series. And I actually worked on developing the script with a wonderful writer named Ann Kenny, um, and she was a big showrunner for them and done a lot of series, and she loved the book. And, and it was sort of a groundbreaking thing that I was able to develop the pilot script with her because they never want to let you do that. You know, they just don't want to. They want to say, like, we want your book, we want your characters, here's some you know, money, now go away. Um, and Anne was really great, and she backed me up and said, no, Mich- I really want Michelle involved in developing the script. And it was a wonderful thing, and we had a great time. And they held on to it for a couple of years, and then they finally decided not to do anything with it. But it was a, and a very exciting process to me. Um, so, you know, I would, love to, I would love to do that. I would, I would love to see one of my books turn into a movie or a series. And, um, yeah, I would love that. And you and you know how to do it now. I mean, because you had yeah, the. And I have a lot, of, and I have a lot of you know relationships and contacts with people in in the entertainment industry, which is great because I do have. I have a wonderful rep at Heroes and Villains named Jen Weinbaum, and she's my sort of literary rep for developing, not for books, but for developing projects. And um, and that's wonderful. You know, it's a great outlet to have, and it's great to have those relationships. Now, would you ever think of moving back to LA? Oh yeah, I you know I love LA. I'm one of those people that absolutely loves LA. Absolutely loves it, and I would move back. I'd move back in a heartbeat. Um, maybe not right into the center of the city where I used to live, just because with a child it's a little hard getting around. Um, but I would move maybe to a suburb and be able to come in and out as I as I pleased, you know. Because I do. I love the museums. I love the food. I love the people. All my friends are there. You know, my whole history is there. I you know I go to these little restaurants I've gone to since I was in kindergarten and I still go to those places and I know everybody who works there and I see all my I run into people I went to school with my whole life there we all go to those places and I'm like hey great to see you how's your mom you know um so there's many many things I love about I love about LA the traffic the traffic's just I I always tell people when people visit they go oh let's go to the beach you live in Burbank it's only 22 miles I go yeah but you don't understand you don't know it's a day it's a day yeah it's like the day. LA traffic in most places are a minute a mile. LA is two point five to three minutes per mile. If you want to go from Burbank to the beach, that's like an entire day. Forget <laughs> it. I mean, that's an entire day trip, and you'll be get back in the evening. Now, do you tweet a lot? I know, give your twi- Twitter handle. I've started to. I've started to. I've started to sort of jump into the social media world. It's a little different for me. I'm, you know, I'm not from that era, but. And I'm a private person, but I kind of do like it. I'm beginning to sort of get how it works, and I do like it. Hey, I have to tell you, though, you know the city I love and I consider moving to? Philly. Hey, it's great. Oh, I love Philly. I, I moved to Philly in a heartbeat. I sh- heartbeat. Well, my girlfriend just moved out here from New Jersey two years ago, and I always joke. I say, we're moving back to Philly, and she was just back there to do a show for something, and she's like, it's too humid, and and that's someone who's only been for two years, so that's the problem. It gets too humid. Oh, I just love Philadelphia. Love it, love it. My son loves it. My son says all the time, when can we move to Philly? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> now, give, give all your social media info. My social media is, um, I'm trying to remember what it all is. I have a... Um, my Facebook page, which I believe is, I think it's Michelle D. Green, actually. That's your Twitter. Oh, that's my Twitter. Okay, I think that's also my Instagram. Okay. so Michelle D. Green. And then my Facebook page, I have my regular personal page, of course. And then I have a fan page that somebody else set up that I don't even, I don't even know what's on that. Some other person I don't even know did that. Um, and I have a new page for my new, I have a, um, a language arts foundation that I'm just setting up called Adelante Arts Organization. And I have a new page for that, and we're doing all kinds of like workshops and master classes. I'm bringing um, a whole bunch of different actors and writers and screenwriters into the fold to have kind of a performing arts and language arts uh, program, you know, that has that has a lot of professional people working in it. So I'm very excited. But and that is Adelante, which is spelled A D E L A N T E, arts organization and adelante in spanish means to move forward well i want to thank you for coming on this is fun you great talking to you and so people follow her follow me on twitter at cooper talk that's at cooper talk instagram words with friend at cooper talk one website cooper talk.net i have 546 episodes up there you can also email me at cooper cooper talk.net so keep listening uh next week one of my three guests next week one of them is lisa loeb 
who's wonderful, and the amazing comic Rich Scheidner, who comes, he's a South Jersey guy, coming to promote his book. So follow Michelle B. Green at Twitter. It's 1L, not 2, and follow me at Cooper. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.